Welcome to another episode of the Green Section Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Miller, Northeast Region Agronomist and Director of the Green Section Education Program. It's an exciting time in golf. Rounds are up. More new golfers are taking up the sport. Golf retail is off the charts. You know, a lot of great opportunities for golf course superintendents, owners, and operators to capitalize on this new golf boom. But at the same time, there are plenty of challenges facing the industry as well. We've got water availability and cost issues, supply chain problems, and increased cost of goods, and, and labor is a, a really a, a major obstacle that so many golf courses are facing. So George Waters and I sat down with Mike Wan, the new CEO of the USGA, uh, and get his take on sort of the different opportunities and challenges facing the industry and how the USGA and the green section can help. We also touched on Mike's past experience working on a golf course maintenance team and how surprisingly he actually got electrocuted on the job one day while working on a drainage project. So here's our conversation with Mike. Mike, welcome to the show. We're, we're really excited to have you here. Um, we'll start, you know, you've got a really cool background working at Procter & Gamble, working for TaylorMade. The hockey industry is one that uh, some people might not have known about, and then obviously most recently commissioner of the LPGA. Um, but I think what our listeners will be most interested in hearing about is sort of your early days as a teenager working on a maintenance staff in uh, Cincinnati. That's interesting. Of all the people that have looked at my resume, you're the first one that jumps to being a bunker boy and uh, edging bunkers for one summer and putting in drainage. I had a groundskeeper that I met that said, if you can make it through a summer as a bunker boy, I'll teach you how to ride all the riding apparatus the next summer. And I was pretty young. I think I was pre-driver's license. So driving riding apparatus was a home run at that age. So uh, that first summer was uh, was not great. You know, I would say if you see some kid in a bunker when you're playing golf, go hug that kid because he's having a miserable summer. But uh, drainage ditches and um, you know, building, you know, retaining walls and, you know, and raking every bunker every time. You know, when it rained, I literally would go into a nervous twitch because that meant you had to go shovel the sand back up to the banks. And so, um, so yeah, it was a great, it was a great first experience. It got me on a golf course. We worked from 530 to 230, um, which probably explains even to this day, I've got sleep issues. I mean, I'm asleep by eight o'clock at night and wide awake at four. Um, but you were done, we were done at 2.30, sometimes 3.30, and uh, if you were a bunker boy, you could play free golf at a country club that probably to this day still wouldn't have me. And uh, so being able to play that much golf at a place called Coldstream Country Club in Cincinnati was, um, was unbelievable. And, uh, and so there it went on to, you know, cutting fairways, cutting greens, tees, aprons. I mean, I've changed all locations. There's not much on a golf course I haven't done, including electrocute myself. Uh, one beautiful summer afternoon working on some drainage, I woke up five feet from where I started working. So uh, it was a great, it was a great experience, a great way to be young and uh, kept me close to the game and probably made me love the game even more than I already did. So the electrocution aside, did you ever have any, you know, thoughts of becoming a golf course superintendent or was it just sort of a summer job that you really enjoyed? Me thinking about being a golf course superintendent is like when I tell the story that I thought I was going to play in the NFL. Those were both would have been wonderful dreams that only I would have had. I was, I was good because I showed up on time um, and I did what I was told to do. But in terms of big picture thinking on a golf course, uh, no, I, I don't, it didn't come natural for me. <laughs> so growing up, Naperville, Illinois is, is where you were born, and it sounds like you, you moved sometime around high school to Cincinnati. You know, I, I'm curious, who's your team then? Who's your sports team? Is it Bears, Bengals? I'm a Packer fan growing up in Wisconsin, mm, so... You didn't have to mention that. It, you know, if you say Bears, I'm going to be a little disappointed, but... Well, I'll make your day then. I'm definitely a Bengals fan. I moved in 81... 80, I think we moved, or in 81. It was the year the Bengals went to their first Super Bowl in Detroit, and my dad and I drove up to Detroit without tickets and scalped tickets in the parking lot. It was my first real scalping experience as a young boy 
boy to watch your dad haggle. Second to last row. And back then, it was the Silver Dome, I think it was called, in Detroit. And I think you could smoke back then inside a stadium. So if you're the second to last row, it's like it's like being in an ACDC concert. Like, you're pretty much inundated with, with smoke. And uh, so we could sort of see the field, but we were kind of like looking through the hazy days. We, it would be like watching, the, watching a football game from an airplane. Um, but then I became a Bengals fan. My mom actually worked for a lawyer who had a part ownership in the Bengals. And uh, I ended up going to the Bengals' next Super Bowl, which was in 88. Uh, down in Florida. So, um, yeah, I'm a Bengals fan, which is, uh, you know, I just told you the, the Bengals' two greatest moments in life. I think it was 81 and 88. And since then, we've, <laughs> we haven't run a playoff game. So it's been a long dry spout. But when you grew up in Chicago in the 70s, you're used to long dry spouts. It's just what you, you know, the, between the Cubs, uh, you know, the, the, at the time the Bulls were thinking about leaving and going to Vegas, which is weird to think it was pre-Michael Jordan. And the Bears, uh, you know, the Bears, while they had Walter Payton, they had little else. So it was pre, um, it was pre-Super Bowl shuffle days in Chicago. So I'm very used to supporting teams that uh, generally don't see the playoffs. So Bengals in 88, that was that was Icky Woods, Icky Shuffle, well, and Boomer Esiason. I, that, I was, yeah, I remember that one pretty well. So, yeah, that, that's entertaining it stuff. Awesome. It was also, I think, about a year or two after that is the year we were playing the Packers. We were up 21 nothing in the first quarter, just crushing the Packers, and Brett Favre got hurt. And, you know, we sacked him and hurt him. And as a Bengals fan, it was like, yeah. And in, in, in no, it was actually, it wasn't him. It was uh, uh, Majorski. Remember the magic man? Don McC yeah, McCowski. Yeah. And so he, so he hobbles out and in comes this, this young kid nobody ever heard of named Brett Favre. And, you know, they tried to tell us where he was from. And I think he got let go at Atlanta. So I'm thinking, we got this one. Like, you can turn off the TV. And Brett, you know, went on to beat the Bengals, I think, by two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. And obviously, you know, Hall of Famed his career ever since. So one thing the Bengals are pretty good at is launching other people's Hall of Fame career. <laughs> Before joining the USGA, how much did you know about the green section? I mean, we have a long history, but I don't know that we necessarily do the greatest job of promoting ourselves or raising awareness about the green section. I would say almost not at all. I mean, almost not at all, because I've definitely been around a, a green section visit. I've read green section consulting reports, but I never... Now that, I, now that I'm here, I realize what I read came from that group. But I think when I was either at TaylorMade or at Adidas or at the LPGA, I didn't, um, I didn't associate a section or just, I knew it kind of came from the USGA. And I never really understood the, the, you know, the, um, the mystery of the USGA in general anyway. You know, there'd be a ruling or there'd be a championship or, you know, there'd be a youth program, but I never really kind of knew how it worked and, and that there were departments and divisions. And I didn't, you know, I didn't take time to study it. And that doesn't make the USGA unique. When I got to the LPGA, I didn't realize that we had multiple tours. I just knew the LPGA tour. I didn't realize we had a foundation or 2,000 teachers. I mean, there was 2,000 female teachers, and I didn't know the division existed when I walked in as commissioner. And, and like most things, those end up becoming the things that are most magical in your onboarding. I mean, when I think of the LPGA, I think of, you know, what we did at the teachers division as being... Um, Still probably a pretty good secret, but internally something that we're super proud of. And I think the same thing happens at the USGA. I think a lot of people on the outside may not know the green section, but people that wear the logo on our shirt, it's one of the things we're most proud of. What are some of the things that you've learned about the green section since you started? And, you know, what would you like us to be known for going forward? Well, I think um, I, I would say three things. I mean, number one is um, 
I don't think people realize what a long-term perspective the green section brings to the USGA. I think there's a lot of things that happen in golf that are all about today or Tuesday or next week's event. And um, because that's what the media is doing and that's what professional golfers are doing, you can get sucked into that world. And as LPGA commissioner, you know, Tuesday is the next week and you got to zip up your bag and get there and you don't have time to talk about last week or two, or two years from now. And when you spend time in the green section, you're, you're talking about golf over the next 20, 50, 100 years. And um, I've said this many times, thank God, because I don't know who else is having those conversations or doing that work. So one, it's just the long-term perspective. Two, it's ability to fund uh, people outside the USGA that might have bigger ideas than us. You know, through the Davis Grant Program and the, and the combination of that with, with green section knowledge, you know, we're investing in research that can really make a difference for my kids' kids. And, um, you know, I'm sure that's happening in, uh, in tennis or, or hockey, but I didn't experience it at hockey if it was happening. But the fact that, you know, we've got research going on at universities all over the world trying to figure out how we can uh, create more, you know, uh, uh, more resistant to disease uh, strains. How, do we, how can we uh, continue to play this game with a lot less water? Um, you know, how can global, global warming not put an end to, you know, the global growth of the game? That's pretty exciting stuff for me. So uh, it's um, like most companies, you know, the, the future is in the hands of a smaller group of folks. Uh, same thing if you went to GM. You meet a million people working on today's cars and then about a thousand working on the cars in 2050. And that's the future of the brand. And then I think of the green section, I think of the future of the USGA. So one of the tools that, you know, we're probably most known for um, is the stint meter, and, and we get a lot of criticism for it because golfers a lot of times equate faster greens, mean, you know, mean better greens. You know, I'm curious to, you know, get your take on, you know, what you think about sort of the, the green speed issue in golf and the perception that some have that faster is better. Yeah, I, it's sport. You know, uh, listen, it's uh, I've seen people go to the batting cages and turn it on 100 miles an hour. You know, I'm not sure why they do, uh, but that's what they saw on TV, and they want to see if they can hit 100 mile an hour fastball. So there's, you know, there's some, uh, there's some just, you know, wow factor impact of could I putt on the greens that I just watched Jordan Spieth putt on, and I think a lot of golf courses want to say we have the greens that you saw Jordan Spieth putt on, which is sometimes true, sometimes not. So I think it's just it's sport. You know, I mean, it's. Um, you know, I was I was at a uh, I was at a uh, cross country event a while back, and I remember this guy saying, "I bet you I could run an under 540." And his you know his buddy argued with him, and I saw them you know line up for a 40. I thought, well, there goes a couple of hamstrings, you know. But you know, everybody <laughs> wants to know your 40 speed when really it doesn't matter unless you're in a combine. So um, it doesn't shock me. And and at the end of the day, um, I I think it's great that we have some way to measure really measure green speed as opposed to talk about green speed. It's just like handicapping system. I ask you how do you play, and you say I don't. Know, I shoot a around 80 and I say me too and we both could be seven strokes apart and if it wasn't for the world handicapping system and gin that's how we'd play golf and we probably wouldn't enjoy it as much so um, it's it's great that we have real scientific way to measure you know what a green speed really is it, especially not just compared to two in one city but but two in di two different continents talking about televised golf which you just mentioned there you know we get comments uh, pretty regularly in the green section that, you know, the USGA, the green section spent a lot of time talking about sustainability, talking about managing golfer expectations, reasonable expectations. And then, you know, the US Open, some of our bigger televised championships come along and they're on, you know, sort of pristine courses. The telecast talks about how perfect the conditions are, how lightning fast the greens are. And people say like, is that do as I say, not as I do? Like they we get that that kind of feedback. What's your answer to that? I mean, people that think that what we're saying and then what we're promoting on TV 
don't align. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with them. It's hypocritical. I get it. Um, at the same time, they're two completely different topics. So in one case, we're trying to say, if we gathered 150 of the best golfers on the planet in one facility, how would we do our best to separate that 150? Um, and in another case, we're saying, if you have 150 members and you want them to love playing on your golf course and come back every day and want new members to join and stick around afterwards to talk about their round, would you put them on a U.S. Open course? Um, you can. I mean, if that's what you want to build in your club. Um, but I'm not really sure you're going to wake up with more members next year than, than this year. I'm not sure you're going to wake up with costs that are realistic for a member or for you to actually maintain. We realize that. I mean, there's, um, there's events we run at the USGA that aren't on NBC in 127 hours live. And unfortunately, those don't get the much, as much coverage. But we have to change hats just like they have to change hats. I understand that clubs will, will run their course differently on a member member than they write on a, on a regular Sunday. And we have to do the same thing. If we're going to try to separate 150 of the best male, female, senior, amateur, juniors, um, we've got to create conditions that we think can create real separation and, and quite frankly, test them mentally as much as it tests them physically. Um, if you want to do that every Saturday at your golf course, that's up to you. I wouldn't join that club. Um, but that's up to you. So, yes, it's hypocritical, but it's only hypocritical in the fact that there's two different objectives for two totally different goals. If somebody says to me, how do we make a golf course sustainable long term and make sure we have happy members that want to play more golf and love being a part of this club? I would answer one way. If somebody said to me, if we were only going to bring the top 10 players from our club together and for one day figure out who's better than than the others, I would answer another way. So that's um, I would also say the clubs we play that you see on TV probably don't look like that three Mondays later. Um, but they look like that Monday, just like, you know, your hard day competition might look a lot different than three Sundays later. So I wouldn't get too caught up uh, or too caught off guard by that. We're, um, we change objectives every day with regards to what the real goal is. And the real goal, we talk about the green section and golf courses around the U.S., isn't how do we create a bunch of courses that could host one event one time every 12 years. It's how to create golf courses that can host great golf every day, every hour and have members love playing the game. You mentioned earlier, Mike, you felt like you were successful as a, you know, working on maintenance staff because one of it was you showed up. And that kind of gets to one of the big challenges that the industry is facing right now is just sort of labor. I'm curious, what do you see as the greatest challenges facing the game? What do you think the role is of the USGA in general and, and the green section in particular to try to help overcome those challenges? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd start by saying, you know, Mike went on the job 100 days is whatever he says. You should probably asterisk that because I'm not sure I'm the expert in that. But listen, I spent a lot of my life west of the Mississippi uh, in California, Arizona. And if you don't think water is a long term problem here, you're not paying attention. I get it. If you live in Florida and it probably rained three hours while you started listening to the podcast, you don't consider water a real issue. Um, but if you love the game, you got to care about the issues in all parts. So so making sure that we can create, you know, uh, a game that isn't um, uh, made or break based on how much water availability is going to be is going to be important to us. And um, I'm committed to spending tens of millions of dollars in the next decade or two to get real solutions because telling people just to water less, it kind of goes back to early conversation. Easy for me to say, but they've got members to make happy and, um, you know, playing on brown grass might be fine for me, but not fine for their members. So we've got to figure out answers that are other than asking somebody to cut back on resources. We have to give them real options on how to cut back on resources and still deliver the track that your members or your, or your average player who's paying to play wants to, wants to get. 
Um, so, so that's one. I mean, the second thing is we've got to create, um, we've got to understand that there's different type of golfers. So if you're going to host a, a college golf event and you're going to make the, you know, the, the rough a little higher and the greens a little faster and the, the aprons a little tighter, great. But understand that, you know, Tuesday after that event, you may not want to be doing the same thing for your average, you know, player on tour. So making sure we can create a, uh, an experience that's enjoyable. What's happening in 20 and 20 and 21 is more people are coming to this game than ever before that have very little experience in golf. So all the things we know as golfers bother us, but we don't leave over time, effort, and money um, are going to be impactful to these people coming for the first time. Sometimes we can't affect time, especially now that golf courses are full, but how hard it is to play the game, we have an impact on that. I mean, if you want to run your, your fairways at 0.25 inches, then don't expect anybody to be able to chip well from 40, you know, from 40 yards out unless they're practicing that every day. I'm not sure why a, a little bit longer fairway wouldn't be good for you, good for your cost, great for your, for your player's experience, uh, and a little bit more enjoyable for everybody else. If you need to trim that down when you're having a major competition, do so. So, um, so I think we got to think about what the playing experience is uh, is like. Time is is a definite one. I, mean, we, I think um, I wish we could get more and more to playing six holes, playing nine holes, playing twelve holes is okay. Figuring out how to charge people for that. So if they only got two hours, they could play for two hours. That might be a bit of a pipe dream, as I say it today, because you know back in 2019, I thought we've got all this space and availability. Why don't you just be a little bit more flexible with how you let people on? Today we don't have as much space because it's so much play is happening. So there's probably going to be a lot less interest in different approaches today but I think in a couple of years we'll be back to saying how do we make sure we get those people that have experienced this I mean top golf is this incredible thing that's throwing off five million people a year that have swung a golf club but have never walked on a golf course that is what we've been waiting for right for a hundred years real trial experience um, and th that generates real interest in taking it to the next level we got to figure out how to onboard a top golfer into a golf course and if the only answer is 845 on Saturday please be done in four hours and eight minutes that person's probably not going to stick with us. So I don't have all those answers, but I'm not sure as an industry we're spending enough time talking about how to get those four and a half or five million over in a comfortable, enjoyable way. You touched on that water issue uh, and, you know, your desire, the USJ's desire to invest in, in it in the future. Do you see that as investment as a focus that's primarily in those sort of water scarce states, or do you see it as more of like a national picture and sort of like an approach to water use in the game in general. Yeah, I would even say, you know, beyond water, I just, when you think and talk about resource usage, if we're going to invest in, in researching how to do that better, everybody will take advantage of that. Even the ones who said, yeah, yeah, I don't really need that. But when we come up with real solutions that can cut your cost by hundreds of thousands of dollars, can cut your treatment time in terms of affecting disease and that kind of problem, um, yeah, I don't care where you are in the world, you're going to find that beneficial. And I know that because almost every strain of grass on a golf course today came out of some USJ research over the last 30 years. Even the ones who said, I don't need it, no thank you, are implementing that. So so I've always said that, you know, don't, uh, we don't have to focus so much on our consumer in this case, that that's the only thing we work on. We know that um, that cost and, and durability, sustainability of the golf course is, uh, is, is going to be a limiting factor to how many golf courses are around, how many get built, and how many opportunities as a young kid you'd have to play somewhere. So addressing that will be, benefit for every, will be beneficial for everybody. Even the ones who don't think they need it today will benefit from it if we can come, come up with real solutions. Uh, in 2020, we had roughly 6.2 million golfers that took up the sport, um, but we also saw about 5.7 million leave uh, so what is it about golf? You, you mentioned time. You know, there's some cost uh, implications, obviously, as well. But what is it about golf that you think needs to change to sort of lose less of those 5.7 million golfers? And, and what can the USGA and the green section do to help? 
Yeah, I mean, some of it's life, you know. So, I mean, I, I've, 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 been, I've been doing this a long time. So people tell me, all these people we lost. I said, you know, in my 20s, you lost me. And I love this game. I had three kids, right? I was a little league coach and I was driving an SUV to 400,000 miles of travel ball a year. And, um, you know, I just couldn't slide golf into my, into my priorities. I knew I'd be back, um, but I also knew that at that point, if I looked at my wife and said, if you need me, I'll be back in five hours, I probably would have come home to a pretty empty household. You know, I think, I think some of the things we have to realize about is, is pastimes sports, leisure activity, um, you know, adult competition is going to come and go based on where it fits in your life. And I think we got to be okay with that. I just think when somebody does come back, we got to make sure we have entry points for them. However, they come back. There's a lot of ways to look at 2020 and 2021. But um, please don't focus on the 5-7 loss, because I would say that if I would have told anybody in 2019, that in 18 months, we could be sitting here talking about golf courses are so full, we don't know how to get more tee times. Uh, retail golf shops so empty they don't know how to get more inventory and manufacturers complaining because all of their inventory has left their building none of those things would have been believable at the time uh, and at the and in the midst of all that double digit growth from a standpoint of uh, both uh, youth coming on and TV viewership I mean a lot of a lot of uh, sports have continued to play through the pandemic very few of them have seen an increase in viewership almost all of them have seen massive decreases except golf which has seen double double digit increases so I think one thing we've proved in this pandemic is given given more time for me and more time to make choices at home, people are choosing this sport. We should feel great about that because if, if the exact opposite would have happened, if we would have tested the theory that said you got more flexibility uh, and your golf course is open and we went down, we would need, we would need to be fixing some pretty, some pretty significant issues. And there's plenty of sports that are facing that statistic. And so I don't know what you say to yourself if you say they finally had the time, effort, and money, and they didn't come. In our case, they came. And now the key, the key for us is how to make sure they still want to come as their life gets back to some degree of normal. I've said this, and I believe it. I don't believe work life will ever be like 2019 again. I also don't think it's going to be like 2020. I don't think you're going to be home five days a week. But I don't think you're going to be at work five days a week in 2022. There's going to be some hybrid in the middle. And that's kind of what's happening with golf. I don't think we're going back to 2019 rounds played. And I also don't think we're going to be living in a regularity of 2020. But the end of 2021 is showing us that 16, 17, 19 percentage kind of growth is real versus what it was pre-pandemic. And the reason is, is people have gotten a greater grasp of work family balance and just quite frankly, priorities and being outside and, and being competitive is uh, is more important as a priority to most people today than it was in 2018 when it was actually not OK to say that was a priority. If you told people you wanted to play more golf in 2018, your boss probably would have been thinking about, you know, Indeed or Monster.com. Today, if you said that to your boss, they'd probably say, yeah, me too. And so I think there's an interesting uh, time for us to say that golf, golf can play an important role in this new hybrid lifestyle work. And if you want to keep employees happy, you're going to have to give them more time to find their work balance. And if golf is wise, make sure that time and balance is being spent on you. What's the best way for the USGA and the green section in particular to kind of capitalize on that and help that in the next five years, 10 years, however you see it. I've shifted since when I was at when I was at the LPGA, my life was always about the next month, the next quarter or the next year. I kind of thought like a public company, right? Just achieve next year's quarter. And um, what's really, I got to say, exciting for a guy who's lived that life most of his life. When I when I when I walk into my office at the USGA, almost every meeting I am talking about 20, 30, 50 years from now. And the reason that excites me is because I know that 
David Fay was doing that in the 80s. And look how solid golf is today. We, golf was ready. Somebody said to me, I was in a meeting the other day, and somebody said, luckily we built an arc before it started raining. And I think, and I thought when they said that, I said, you know, I, I think the USGA in the game of golf built an arc before it started raining. And as a result, we floated through a pandemic in a pretty significant way. So what's the next arc that I've got to build for the 20s, 30s, and 40s? Um, and some of those things, when you come up with those answers, the person playing in 2022 doesn't like it, right? I mean, I, I've said many times, like, I'm not going to waste a lot of my breath talking about a 47-inch shaft, you know? Golf doesn't have to have it. It's not necessary. If you want to play it, play it. But if we're going to try to keep the game inside the cathedrals of the game, that's a simple, small thing that really doesn't matter one way or the other in the grand scope of things and a smart move to make now because if we tried to make it later it'd be really painful so we've got to think about the things that over the next 20 30 and 50 years can make sure that my kids and my kids kids experience an even better game than i did and i believe that i got to experience a better game than my dad did because some people at the usga and others were thinking about 2020 way before it was 2020 and i feel that responsibility i feel like the baton's in my hand now to say Think more about 2050. There's plenty of people thinking about December 21. You be the guy thinking about December 31. And, um, and that's not easy for a hyper over-caffeinated guy, but, it's, um, but it is really what our responsibility is. And I really think the game deserves, quite frankly, it's our responsibility to be that long-term thinker, even when long-term thinking isn't met with a lot of excitement in today. And, uh, and I'm, I'm excited about, I mean, I'm 56, so I'm not gonna be doing this when I'm 66. So I got a short-term fuse in my, in my mind to make sure that I leave this game really good for the kids' kids of the future. Well, I know certainly for everyone in the green section, we're we're excited about the the future with you. Um, you know, leading our charge. I think a big part of that is because we have always th taken that mindset of advancing the game, thinking 10, 20 years down the road, especially with the Mike Davis program to, to really fund research. So um, we're we're super excited for the future. Thanks so much for taking the time. It was awesome to have you on the show today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Green Section Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Miller. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, either through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at USG Green Section. And make sure to subscribe to the Green Section Record. It's our free digital publication that's published twice each month. And it includes information about golf course maintenance practices, field observations from our team of regional agronomists, and the latest turf grass and environmental research.